some people are wired to focus on how, and we put them in the creative meeting. And that meeting is not for how that meeting should revolve around anything being possible. And so someone throws out an idea and then a leader, instead of saying, wow, let's explore that. Someone in the room goes, how? Well, now everyone immediately got misdirected. Their mind shifts to how something's going to be possible. They realize it might not be. And then that good idea never becomes great because it never got developed. Hey, everyone. This is David Paul. On this episode, we're talking with Harris III. Harris is an illusionist, storyteller, and renowned communicator. He's helped audiences around the globe discover a life beyond their imagination. He was named one of America's most influential young people by the Catalyst Conference, and he's made a number of film, television, and countless live event appearances. Um, This is a really interesting conversation. I first met Harris when I attended the Story Conference that he and his team put on every year in Nashville. It's a conference where storytellers, creators, and marketers come together to explore new ideas, and I was really blown away by it the first time I went. Um, In this conversation, we're going to talk about a number of things. We're going to talk about how uh, Harris's craft was really influenced by the fact that he was bullied as a kid and he needed to find a way to work himself out of that and find his place in the world. We're also going to talk about uh, how Harris uses misdirection uh, as an engagement tool, but really the difference between deception and persuasion as the two different sides of misdirection. We're going to talk about really the only way to persuade people and move them to action is to shift their attitude and their mindset. And Harris is going to take us through some of the ways that he does that through speaking engagements and live events. Um, And finally, we're going to talk about the importance of finding your wow and not just your how and letting imagination take over and not worrying so much about how you're going to get something done, but first focusing on what's possible. So this is a really fun conversation. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, we're going to kick it off with Harris giving us a little bit about his background. Well, I will try to keep it as brief as possible because it really is a long story with a lot of details. <laughs> but, you know, so much of it began at nine years old. That was a major turning point in my life. When I was nine years old, I was living in a small town in southeast Tennessee. My parents had minimum wage jobs. My dad worked at a factory. My mom was a housekeeper at a college campus. And I was kind of the bullied kid at school that wasn't really good at anything. Sucked at sports, wasn't really good at anything else. And then I'm nine. My grandmother gives me a magic kit for Christmas, this box of magic tricks. And at first I thought it was kind of dumb. Wasn't really interested. A couple of days go by. I get bored. I do my first trick for my mom and dad. The look of wonder on their faces was not only empowering to me, but it also awakened possibility. And I began to imagine that, you know, kind of a whole new life. And so that that's what began the process of me dreaming up this idea of what if I could travel around the world doing magic shows. You know, when you're the, the bullied kid that's picked on all the time, magic becomes somewhat empowering, right? Because you're doing this stuff and nobody knows how it works. And so when you perform it, people kind of give you this look of like, I don't understand what just happened. And so internally, you kind of feel this empowerment of like, whoa, this is actually pretty cool. So fast forward, by the time I graduated from high school, I'd performed magic, you know, in almost all 50 states, been booked by requests and all literally across the U.S. and then started doing tours in Europe and 
Asia and Canada and started performing on a cruise ship in the Caribbean as a teenager. And so yeah. turned 21, thought I'm going to get out of my little small town, um, was making great money doing magic. So moved to Nashville, Tennessee, thinking it was going to be a portal to another big city like New York or LA. And here we are 13 years later, I'm still in Nashville. So still performing magic full time. I travel around speaking, performing and telling stories from the perspective of an illusionist about 50 to 75 events a year while simultaneously consulting on other people's events, running an amazing conference called Story, um, and serving that creative community and a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that that, could, that same story could be rolled out into a very, very uh, long story. But, um, <laughs> but uh, Yeah, you could, it, you could just a, name a year. <laughs> we would go back right, to that pick, year. It's like, oh, let me tell you all the stories from that year. Yeah, exactly. So, so when you got that box of magic at nine years old and, you know, whenever you felt like you started to become good at it, did, did you ever go back to any of those kids that had bullied you at school or where you felt like more of an outcast? And um, did, did you kind of amaze and delight some of those kids, same kids <laughs> in school? And did that change your, did that change your, your uh, remaining years at school though? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's the nature of living in a small town is, you know, when I was going through my freshman year of high school, for the most part, my class consisted of the same kids that made fun of me in third grade, you know? Um, and yeah. so we all kind of changed over the years and grew up, but yeah, it kind of shifted because a lot of it had to do with your social status. You know, my parents having minimum wage jobs and us living out in the middle of nowhere. And then, you know, fast forward, I was doing, I started making six figures a year as a magician probably when I was about 14, 15 years old. And so to all these other kids, you know, and even though they lived in a small town as well, a lot of them were more well off. All of a sudden I was like the cool kid in my school, which, right. you know, looking back had its pros and cons, but it also forced me to kind of start changing things about myself that I wish I wouldn't have changed at the time. I started making some choices that I still regret to this day all because of that social pressure of wanting to go from being bullied to being one of the cool kids. <laughs> yep. Yep. Well, I know that feeling too. I, I myself, um, I was also bullied in my younger years of school. Um, never really had a wicked cool side gig of magic to work my way out of that. <laughs> so it really just came down to uh, me and the other kids all kind of growing up a little bit. And I, I found myself um, really kind of getting into this small group of, of misfits where, where none yeah. of us really felt like we belonged anywhere else, kind of like a, maybe a breakfast club kind of situation, but we all sure, clicked. Yeah. And, um, and awesome. it's funny, I met, I, I met my wife in that clique, and I still have a couple of good friends that I'm, that I'm still friends with uh, back east. I live out in Portland, Oregon now, but um, that, was, that was some life-changing time, middle of high school is when that happened. I'm jealous. I, I never really found that group. I, I think part of it, after my freshman year, I dropped out of public school, kind of did a homeschooling program on the road. My parents joked around and called it. They said I was in hotel school instead of homeschool because I was traveling full time. But I think I I left before that that chance of finding that new group. Because even though I was mm -hmm. one of the popular cool kids because I was the guy doing magic tricks all the time, at the end of the day, those weren't really true relationships or friendships. It was right. the gimmick of magic tricks. Like, hey, Harris, come over here, man, do a card trick. Well, 
they weren't really friends with me. They just wanted me to impress their friends. And so I was kind of like the little circus monkey that you could call over. Um, and so I kind of, uh, went and did my own thing, just started traveling full time and, you know, didn't, didn't really have that, that support yeah. that you're talking about. At least not, I did yeah. from a group of adults, but not from other kids my age. Yeah. And so, you know, to, to the other kids, it was, um, it was kind of like you talk about, it was that, it was that gimmick and that, uh, you know, the fact that you of all people are suddenly coming out and being cool. But then, uh, as you've grown up and done it as your career, um, you you had this one series on YouTube. I, I don't know if you still do any of them, but it was your random acts of magic series <laughs> yeah. um, where, you know, they're two, three minute videos, but you would, you would stop people on the street or go up to a Salvation Army yeah. change collector and you would, yeah. you would delight them with magic, but then you'd also leave them behind with something wonderful for them. And what struck me about that was, um, you, you, while you were doing it as a YouTube video and clearly it helps build your reputation, but there was a sense of joy in your eyes and on your face. And, uh, I, I think you got as much or more joy out of doing it than they got out of receiving it. Where, where how did that get started? No and, and was there one, one particular one of those that really stands out at you? That was just an amazing moment for you. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of them stand out, obviously that really started, you know, when it, back when I was 21 years old, um, I don't remember how many years it's been since we started filming them and putting them on YouTube, maybe three or four years ago, I guess. Um, but man, when I was 21, I, again, I'm trying to take these, this really long story of my life and shrink it down into small deliverable sound bites. But, um, I had made a million dollars. I had escaped my small town. I built this house in Franklin, Tennessee, which is a kind of a wealthy suburb of Nashville. And I had no idea what I was doing and my identity and value was kind of wrapped up in the perception of other people. And it was that like, you know, I don't, my, I don't, my life doesn't really mean anything unless people think I'm cool. And so I, you know, did the whole American dream thing and bought nice stuff and mm -hmm. parked nice cars in my driveway. And then I ended mm -hmm. up on this artist retreat down in Central America and on the last day of this retreat, we went to visit um, some families that one of the nonprofits we were volunteering with was working with. And they had like seemingly nothing in terms of physical possessions, but they had so much joy. And it's because like in the process of asking them a million questions, it's like they just felt grateful to be alive and they felt grateful for the support they were getting from this nonprofit. Their kids weren't starving anymore. They had access to clean water because they had dug a water well. And here I was whining and complaining about my difficult life back home in America. And so I think that experience kind of became a catalyst for me to live a different kind of life. And so I came back to the States and my wife and I had gotten married young that year at 21. And we just kind of got really serious about like, what do we want to invest our life in? What do we want to pour ourselves into? And it was really unfulfilling for the answer to that to always be ourselves. And so we started asking, what would it look like to focus on how can we take the talents that we have to try to change the future of the way the world looks to, to leave a different legacy behind. And so we just started trying to live a more generous life. Um, you know, be, not just throwing change in a bucket to, or putting a dollar in the hand of a homeless dude on a street corner, but like stopping and asking that dude's name and finding out his story. Like, Hey man, what's your name? How'd you end up here? Like, instead of just giving you money, I don't have anything to do for the next 30 minutes. You want to go down the street to this, 
KFC and like, let's get a bucket of chicken and eat it together and like talk. And I want to hear your story. And so I had already kind of just started like understanding the impact of what it felt like to be a part of a random act of kindness for a stranger and hearing their story. And so those videos that you're talking about are really just, you know, I thought, man, if ever, if everyone else could experience this for themselves, then they would want to go live this kind of generous life. And I realized that was what was truly magical is kindness for a stranger. That's magic. But I was already doing magic tricks for strangers on the street sometimes. And I was already doing random acts of kindness, like every now and then buying the groceries of the person in line at the grocery store in mm-hmm. front of me or behind me. Why not capture it on film, throw it on YouTube in hopes that it inspires other people to do the same? And it, yeah. it did. It worked. You know, the, during the time we were publishing those videos on a regular basis, we were getting like emails through our website, Facebook messages. People were just like, hey, I just bought coffee for the people in line behind me at Starbucks. Hey, I just took a guy out to dinner. Um, like I actually let a homeless dude in my car. Like crazy stories that people would have never done, but they did because they saw that video. Um, and so for me, my favorite one, it's a long way to answer your question, but was we did this one at a gas station. We were buying people tanks of gas. Um, and I turned to our video crew and he was like, so we've got everything that we need. And I was like, well, there's still daylight out. We have everything we need, but like, that was so much fun. Let's do it again. And so we went inside and bought another few hundred dollars worth of gas cards and we just kept doing it without the cameras. Um, and man, it was just it's, it was a highlight because you begin to realize that magic is not about the trick. Magic is not something that you watch a magician do. Magic is something that you feel in response to true magic. Um, yeah. And it was really, really cool to be a part of all that. Yeah, no, it was awesome. I, I loved watching them. It just put a smile on my face to, to watch each one of those. And in one of them, maybe more of them, you said uh, true kindness is real magic. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So I, I imagine that's what came out of that. So speaking of real magic, I also heard mm-hmm. that um, that uh, seeing snow for the first time as a kid was a major <laughs> um, real magic moment for you. So let's rewind a little bit. Is that is that really sure. when you were when you were just captured, captivated most by by something wondrous? You think that planted an important seed for you? Yeah, you know, it didn't snow very often in Southeast Tennessee in the mid-80s, and the, it happened twice, and I'd missed it. We were further south visiting family, um, and so kind of by the age of five, I'd seen it on TV and in Christmas movies, and I'd wrapped my head, my little five-year-old brain around the concept of snow, um, but ended up seeing it at six years old over Christmas um, at my grandparents' house. My dad was originally from St. Louis, and so we finally convince my parents to take us to St. Louis for Christmas instead of my grandparents coming mm-hmm. south, which makes sense. You know, they're like, we want to come down where it's warm and trying to convince my parents to drive north where there could be snow just didn't make sense to them. So that was the transition. And yeah, man, I, it's something that I obviously thought was very magical at the time. And then in the cynic cynicism yeah. of my teenage years and early twenties, I lost its appreciation for it. So a few years ago when I became a dad and began to wrap my head around the concept of what you know, quote unquote, real magic is, that's when I went back to understanding the value of that snow story. Because it's it's a perfect example of something that we all wish for and desire and crave as kids. And then if we experience snow on a regular basis as adults, 
we kind of like roll our eyes and be like, oh, it's just snow. If anything, it's annoying because it gets in the way. It's harder to right. drive depending on what part of the country you live in. Like you've got to rush to the grocery store and buy milk and eggs and bread. <laughs> it's cold. Right. Um, but like when you view it through the mind of a child, it is, it's truly magical. And yeah. I see, yeah, think, I see that with my, with my kids too. They, you know, a few flurries start falling out of the sky and they just yeah. freak out. They're just so thrilled by it. Yeah, it's ironic that people call what magicians and illusionists do on stage magic when it is they're totally they're just tricks, right? They're just illusions. I'm yeah. not like mm-hmm. I'm not like into witchcraft. I'm not a wizard or Harry Potter or anything, right? Like we all know it is it just sleight of hand magic tricks that use psychology. But yet we call mm-hmm. it magic. And yet we're so cynical and we look around at the world and we think there's no magic to see and yet there actually is real magic all around us. And so the thing that we label magic is not, and the thing we roll our eyes at and think is fake is actually real magic. Um, So it's just really ironic that people call us magicians. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's funny. And so let me ask you this then, because you mentioned your, your son, his name's Jude, right? Uh Yep. Right. So you meant, you mentioned your son and we're talking about the snow story. So, um, uh, on your Instagram feed, uh, back in December, you have this amazing photo of you and your son on stage. I'm assuming it's the, it's the end of one of your shows and you probably oh, yeah. brought him out. The audience I'm sure loved it, but it looked like what was falling from the sky was snow, maybe confetti or something. <laughs> but was that, is, is that part of some of your shows and do you deliberately make that s- snow? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I do. I I will tell that story of, you know, what real magic is and to try to take people back to that moment of feeling wonder. Um, you know, I tell that story and then at the end there's a magic trick where it snows on stage, quote unquote snows, you know, and then uh, right. I was doing this series of Christmas events and she was basically on the road with me for that weekend so we could hang out with each other. And uh, I, I uh, told the host of the event, he was standing over in the wings in the side stage of the theater and was like, hey, the moment that it's that I finish making it snow before all the snow falls down and hits the ground, like just release him and let him run on stage and let's see what happens. <laughs> and so they let him they let him go. And he like ran on stage, did a few circles and then ran straight to the front edge of the stage and kind of like smiled at everybody and just posed. Uh, and the crowd went yeah. nuts. So. I don't know what that means. It might mean that he has performer in him or that I'm going to replace, be replaced sooner than I realized. I don't know. <laughs> it, it's in his DNA. But he definitely but, uh, that, that is an amazing, that moment that was captured um, with the two of you standing there and you're looking up and he's like mid dance or something. And there's, there's joy happening in that moment. That's an amazing photo. Yeah. But you know what, what else is interesting though is, um, what's fascinating about your Instagram feed that I, it took me a little while for it to, for it to register with me, what it was that I was seeing, but your, your Instagram feed is, is absolute happiness. When you scroll through those photos and of course we pick and choose and we always put out the best, <laughs> the best vision of ourselves, but there are more smiles and genuine happy faces um, in that, in that feed and I think it must just really speak to what you bring out in people, but also how how you how you seek to spend your time and spend your days. Oh, thanks, man. It's uh, I agree with you. We do have a tendency to kind of curate our social media presence with yeah. 
the highlights. It's the highlight reels. But I try to be transparent. But I think it's still possible. It's still possible to, because it's. I think it's impossible. I do this thing every weekend where I do this public display of gratitude, which is just me posting a picture of something and then commenting about, you know, here's at least one thing. It's usually three things easily that I'm grateful for this week. Because I've discovered mm-hmm. it's really, really difficult, if not impossible to be unhappy and grateful at the same time. And so it doesn't mean my life's perfect. It's easy to scroll through an Instagram feed and make it look like it's perfect, but it's, it's really not. But that doesn't mean that you can't have joy amidst all that stuff. Because a lot of people think that, that, that real magic is it's always at the top of the Hills of the roller coaster or that like you look back throughout the the year and it's like, well, where was the magic? Oh, it was that day we went to Disney world or was that, you know, that one night we were on vacation in the mountains and we got to watch the sunset over the whatever. And mm-hmm. it was perfectly 68 degrees outside. Those, those mountaintop moments tend to be the things that we label as the truly magical moments. Um, and then that's what that perspective is what makes the rest of the year seem somewhat mundane, but with mm-hmm. some intentionality and an, with, with an understanding of what real magic is and keeping wonder and curiosity and imagine awake in your mind and in your heart, I think it's possible to find beauty and magic in those mundane moments. And so mm-hmm. it's not that every day of my life is perfect and happy and filled with joy. It's just that even the days that aren't so great, it's still possible to find some joy in those moments and find something to be grateful for, which yeah. means there's still a reason to smile. So it's possible to take a picture every day and still smile in it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I- no, it does make sense, and it you know it puts a smile on my face. So uh, you're uh, you're you're spreading that joy around too, which is awesome. Yeah, it's contagious, right? I mean, it is. So many people have saying they're like, man, he every week he finds something to be grateful for. Maybe I should be more grateful about something. They watch right. a video of me doing a random act of kindness and talking about how magical it feels, and they're like, maybe I should do a random act of magic. You know, you don't have to be a magician to do a random act of magic for somebody. If kindness is truly magical. Yeah. And that's the greatest reward. If you can influence other people and and spread good in a world where unfortunately uh, the negative stories are the ones that are the loudest and often make us Mm -hmm. feel some days like everything's bad when really it's just, (laughs) it's just, it's just the noise. It's the loudest stuff. And there's so much more good than bad. uh, And you just can't let the good get drowned out. No question. I mean, fear is a very positive motivator. And so that's why it works. And so that's why so much of our system is built on that. You got to keep that alive. Otherwise people step out of line and they don't settle for the status quo. And then the world starts to function differently. So it's kind of like the matrix, right? If you remember that movie, it's like if we're, if we can just all walk around without an awareness that the matrix real, well, then we kind of just keep going through the motions and we don't make a fuss about anything and so the world needs us to the world is conspiring against wonder because it needs us to stay in line and not mess anything up and settle for the status quo so yeah no i, I love that so you and i first met at at your story conference uh, last year which you mentioned earlier uh in nashville it's the first time i attended uh, i loved it by the way um uh, it was just an amazing couple of days of a really well curated organized event that was just inspiration after inspiration. But what I'm most curious about is that uh, putting on an event like that is no easy feat. And having to engage a large audience, a diverse audience as well, for two full days, 
um, is really hard to do. So well, I'm curious now that you've done it for a number of years, and I'm sure you're getting better at it and learning from it every year. Um, wh what have you learned from producing that conference, that event, about engaging an audience and keeping people's attention uh, throughout those couple of days and also having it linger on uh, after they leave uh, that maybe you, you didn't know before you started putting on that event? It's hmm. a great question. We could go so many different directions. <laughs> Unfortunately, the bad news is that there's not there's not like a black and white framework or template for it, right? That mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. so much of this stuff is not science. It really is an art. It doesn't mean that there's not some science in it and that frameworks aren't helpful, but it's much more of staring at a blank canvas and figuring out what and how should I paint versus here's a coloring sheet with some numbers on each blank and you just assign the right colors and fill in the right colors. Um, yeah. So that can, that can be, that can sound somewhat discouraging and hopeless to someone who has never planned an event before and they just need some guidance. Um, it's, but that doesn't mean that it's not possible to get better at it. Um, yeah. I know that's not necessarily the most, that's not the fun answer to the question, but it's hard to no, really jump into it. that conversation without at least prefacing with, with that. Um, but that said, yeah. uh, I think there are some things that do matter. One of the things that I've learned is that everything is about story. You know, stories are, it's literally the, the operating system of our brain. Stories are how we make sense of everything in the world around us. And if no one is telling us a story intentionally, then we are telling ourselves a story about what we think is being communicated to us or how we're trying to make sense of what it is that we're experiencing. And so some of it is cheating because I'm doing a conference called Story that is about storytelling for a room full of storytellers. And so we share that in common. And it's pretty easy to say, okay, cool. These people are here to learn how to tell stories and that's what we're here for. So we get to teach them how to do that. And it's as simple as that sounds. I actually think it's one of the steps that most people don't understand. They don't really understand what the big idea is. They don't really understand the true reason why people are coming to their event or even why they're doing it. You know, when we go in and consult with people because they bring us in to try to make their live experience or their live event better, most of the time when I sit down in a conference room and be like, okay, cool, what's the, what's the thing that you want everyone knowing when they leave? Most people often don't know the answer to that question. It's kind of all over the place. It's like, well, we kind of want them to do this or it'd be really cool if, you know, we could drive attention to this or you know, this session, I'm like, yeah, let's just forget about that for just a second. We can dig into the details later, but like, what's the one thing? Because at the end of the day, if you can't tell people what your two day event is about in such a simple way that when the doors open at the end and people start flooding out of the venue onto the streets, if a dude rides a bicycle up to one of those attendees and says, Hey, what was going on in there? Oh, it was a conference about blah, 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 blah. Oh, what did they say? If you can't define in a single sentence what you would hope that mm -hmm. attendee would say to that stranger on a bicycle, then your event is not going to be effective because you don't know why you're doing what you do. Um, and so I think getting really, really focused on what is the big idea that you want everyone in your audience to walk away with is a really natural first step. And then everything is about creating an environment and an atmosphere around that big idea. Um, yeah. I think the second thing I would say is probably that most people – we have a tendency to just tell people what we want them to do because 
all of us are doing events, putting commercials on TV, doing marketing, having meetings. We're, we're doing all this activity to try to get people to take a certain action, whether to buy a product, to attend an event, to change something in their life, to make a different choice. It's all about driving some sort of specific action. And what great leaders have known for years is that instead of focusing on changing someone's action, you have to focus on changing and shifting their attitude and mindset because our actions mm. sort of automatically flow out of our attitudes. And so if you change someone, try to tell someone to take a different action or to make a certain choice without shifting their attitude, that like that's going to be very short lived, right? They're not going to make the, yeah. take the action that you want them to take for very long because their attitude is still the same. And what I've discovered is that there's actually a third level that most people don't think about in live event world and that's atmosphere or culture or environment, whatever word you want to use for it. Like if we're, if we're like all floating around on the international space station, I think just the atmosphere that we're in for a couple of days, it's going to change our body chemistry and our mindset and our attitude. And then automatically our actions are going to change out of that. And so the greatest way to shift someone's action is to change their attitude. The greatest way to shift someone's attitude is to put them in a culture or an atmosphere where their attitude automatically changes and then they take the action um, out of that. And so I don't want to simplify it too much, but at the end of the day, man, what we're really trying to do over the course of those two days is to create an atmosphere around a big idea. It's not to get on stage and tell you what action you need to take when you walk out of the door at the end. It's our goal to create an atmosphere that shifts your attitude to an attitude of possibility. And then I think you naturally on your own, are going to figure out what actions to take out of that because your attitude has been shifted by the environment we created. Mm -hmm. So most people don't think about atmosphere. We think atmosphere is everything. And that's why we pour so much effort into it. So identify a big idea and then create an atmosphere where people walk away understanding that big idea. Yeah. Well, you're, you're definitely well on your way to that. I'm sure it gets, uh, you know, better and better every year. Last year was my first. I'm looking forward to this year, but I was taken by, uh, now that you describe it that way, especially, I, I realized it was happening around me without me even realizing it all the time, uh, where there was there was constantly this environment and culture that was being formed throughout those two days that put me in a certain mindset. And then that gets reinforced yeah. by people on the stage and by the attitude of your staff. And it, it really did become much more than a series of talks. And it really it really becomes an experience. Yeah, totally. Because if you, if if we if we ins just tell you to go think bigger, but we don't inspire your attitude to embrace possibility so that you can think bigger, I think we failed. And so yeah. you know, stories about creating that atmosphere of possibility so that your mindset changes, and then you're willing yeah. to take the actions that you probably already know how to take. You know, most creativity is this weird thing that even scientists can't figure out where it comes from sometimes there are parts of it that are transcendent. And so mm -hmm. I believe that you are uniquely creative, that you can figure some of that stuff out on your own. It's getting people to believe that that's possible, that they are creative and to get them outside of their, you know, the trappings of their normal mindset so that they yeah. can actually think in creative ways. Um, yeah. And outside of that, just valuing the idea of story, you know, like story conference begins with a story on Thursday morning and, Friday afternoon finishes with a call to action to go live that story out. So yeah. while teaching people about how to be better storytellers and discussing about 
storytelling trends and industries, we're also telling people mm-hmm. in this, a story and inviting them into a story. Yeah, no, I, I think it's great. And look, nobody also, nobody ever gets into the live event business to, to get rich, maybe not even to make money at all. <laughs> it is a, it is a tough business. So uh, I, another one of your Instagram photos actually has you in the backyard of your house making set pieces for story. Is that, I mean, are you, are you and your family really that hands-on crafting by hand in your backyard? Oh man. Yeah, that was probably, it might've been the parking lot at our office. I think it's, it was it with my yeah. kids or something. I don't, yeah. 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 Um, I think I know that. which picture you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some, some of it is that some of it is, you know, I don't know how deep you want to get into this, but you know, our, our company itself, we don't story is not really a profitable venture for us. As long as we don't yeah. lose money doing story, we take, hundred percent of the income that comes in from registrations and it gets invested back into the conference experience. One, because we consider it a passion project, but two, everything else that we do as a company that does make us profitable pours out of what, the talent that we showcase at story. And so like our consulting clients, they hire us because of the experience they had at story. The people who hire me to come in and speak, they hire me because I'm the guy that directs and creates that story experience. And so that takes some of the pressure off of us to, make a lot of the decisions that a lot of conference directors make that makes a conference less effective because they're trying to squeeze that margin out of it. I think part of what makes people appreciate stories so much, and they don't even necessarily know this at the time, is that there, there's nothing there that is focused on profitability or monetizing every single aspect of the conference. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a long list of ideas that we never get to that we, we green light them one by one um, as you know, registrations come up many times in the last few days leading up to it. And so if there's something that we want to do and I get a bid back from a fabricator and like there was a neon sign that was like 12 feet by 10 feet. It was this massive neon sign hanging above the stage last year. Uh, you can see in a lot of the conference photos as a carnival of curiosity and it lights up. And I think the bid we got back from one of our fabricators, the best one was like $27,000. Um, and I was like, I just felt very strongly, our set designer felt very strongly that that was an anchor part of our set. And so yeah. when we get in those situations and the budget's not there for it, we're just the kind of people that roll up our sleeves and we fabricate the sign ourselves. So yeah. me and Josh, one of our coworkers, and I let my kids, my toddlers come participate every now and then, but that's just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we uh, we go get some materials and uh, set up shop in the office parking lot and start building stuff. I love that. So you, you talked a little bit earlier about um, how it's funny that, you know, that, that they call what you do on stage magic uh, and that real magic is often not, uh, you know, not appreciated for that. So in a way you are a walking paradox, right? You are a master of misdirection and illusionist. And yet at the <laughs> same time, your work is all about, focusing people, whether it's focusing a client on a big idea or focusing an audience on what's happening on a stage or in an environment. So how, how do you use both misdirection and focus together to create these kinds of experiences or engage an audience in the way that you do? Yeah. I mean, it helps if you, if you look at misdirection through the lens of, it could be both a good or a bad thing, right? Like uh, if you're walking through a tourist area, have you ever seen a sign that says, beware of pickpocketers? Um, yeah. if, 
yeah, if you ever see that sign, a lot of the signs are put up by pickpocketers. Um, you know, the first oh, really? thing that you do when you see that sign is you immediately like feel your pocket to make sure your wallet's oh. still there. And what you don't realize do is that, that the guy over in the corner reading the newspaper, you just showed him where your valuables were, so he didn't have to guess which pocket they could be in. Um, so, and then in order for him to pickpocket you is all about the misdirection. People who have been pickpocketed, almost all of them have a story of like, yeah, I remember this person came over to my table and she was holding a baby. Or at least I thought it was a baby or like this guy bumped into me and then immediately apologized. Or like we've all seen the spy movie where the guy has to pickpocket a phone off of somebody and he like bumps into them yeah. at the train station. There was always that moment of misdirection. And so misdirection, deception, whatever word you use to describe it, sometimes gets a bad rap. But really, the only thing that's, that labels something deception or persuasion is the motive behind it. So we, the principles of deception that we use as illusionists are pretty universal. I do magic tricks to trick people in the same way that salesmen sell cars or makeup, in the same way that writers write political speeches. The principles of persuasion are labeled as influence, positive influence, or deception, depending on the motive of the person using them. Mm -hmm. So if I'm trying to rob you, it's called, oh, he deceived me. If I'm trying to persuade you to make better choices in your life, you're like, oh, he's just a really influential, positive leader. And so Mm -hmm. what that has taught me is that these different principles that make magic tricks possible, because they're universal, they can be used to teach people certain things. And if one of those principles is misdirection, that means I can use misdirection to distract you in order to deceive you, or I can use misdirection with my four-year-old to get him to focus. So he's getting distracted by something else, and then I'm misdirecting him to focus him back on what I'm to, what I'm to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it's it's less of a how do I use it to distract people or how do I use it to focus people? It's more of just if you're aware of the concept of misdirection and distraction, just by nature of being aware of it and how it works can help you guard against it when it's a bad thing and teach you how to utilize greater focus. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah and totally. The, I mean, yeah. the other thing it has taught me is that just because you can't see something doesn't mean it isn't there, right? Like if I, if I misdirect your focus away from the secret to the trick, and get you to look at what I want you to look at, then you forget about the fact that there's something else very real behind you or beside you or above you and underneath you. And you think it's not even there just because you didn't see it. Um, And that idea is powerful for anyone who is trying to problem solve or perform creative thinking or innovation. Oftentimes we don't innovate because we think there's not a better idea out there or we overlook someone's potential because we can't see that potential. But what misdirection has taught me is that we misdirect ourselves. We don't believe that something is real because we can't see it. But just because you can't see something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So the next time you think there's not a better idea out there and you're just ready to give up, just because you can't see a better idea doesn't mean one isn't there. The next time you label someone as, well, they don't have the potential to fill that role, but just because you can't see that potential doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Misdirection is a powerful thing. (laughs) You could have just been distracted yeah well so how can people use that for themselves i mean let's you know we've got people listening here who are in all kinds of industries where whether they're creating content or entertainment or like you said writing political speeches or or one side of a debate and their job is to uh, ideally persuade not decept but 
um, persuade uh-huh. or influence. So when you do kind of run into those blocks where uh, your mind just can't see beyond what's literally in front of you, how, how do you work with people and how can you maybe advise people to be able to look past that or open their mind and, and let these other things in that will lead to that, that higher level of engagement? Yeah, um, gosh, there's so much, um, and it can get really deep. Million dollars. It's a million dollar question. (laughs) Yeah, I'll try to give you a simple, just one of one simple tip that maybe might help. Um, That then, and will also serve as an illustration to kind of give you an idea of what I'm talking about. So, like, sometimes we're in a brainstorming meeting, we leave a lot of potential ideas on the table, um, simply because we're so focused and distracted by how something is going to work. And it's the same way that people come to a magic show. Like people ruin magic shows experiences for themselves because when they see a magic trick in 2018, they immediately jump to how. Well, in, in uh, 1918, everyone went to a magic show and they just said, wow. Like they didn't have this yeah. intense need to be like, I have to understand how that just happened. They were comfortable because they were in an era where everything was seemingly magical. And so they just said, Wow. And I think a lot of times in in creative meetings and whether there's someone – I'm not talking about creativity in the form of like artistry necessarily, but mm-hmm. even someone who's brainstorming content ideas to an engineer who's trying to innovate with a certain type of technology. So many times we get misdirected by the how is this going to be possible that we don't let wow have a moment to breathe. And so the idea of championing wonder in creative brainstorming allows you to stay focused on potential ideas and wow things that you haven't discovered yet because you're willing to not allow yourself to get misdirected by the how question. And we, like, we all have to get there. Like we, we wouldn't have gotten to the moon had someone not eventually said, okay, we dreamt up this thing. How are we going to build it? And they have to figure out how do we innovate the technology? How do we engineer a rocket? Like we all have to have a how meeting. The problem is, is some people are wired to focus on how, and we put them in the creative meeting, and that meeting is not for how. That meeting should revolve around anything being possible. And so if someone throws out an idea, and then a leader, instead of saying, wow, let's explore that, someone in the room goes, how? Well, now everyone immediately got misdirected. Their mind shifts to how something's going to be possible. They realize it might not be, and then that good idea never becomes great because it never got developed. Does that make sense? Totally. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, like, giving giving wow a chance to breathe, putting wow before you rush the process directly to how. It's a simple example of how we get distracted by something in our process instead of just allowing wonder. Um, just give it a chance. So, wow before how. And we can talk about stories, too, forever. <laughs> Obviously, the, all, the heart behind why a magic trick works is not the mechanics of the trick. It's the story that's being told. Most even magicians don't realize this, but they, they innately know it from their mentor. But they, if, if someone would have said, why does that magic trick work, they may not be able to articulate, well, it works because of the story that you told yourself about what you think you saw happening. So the moment that I remove the story from a magic trick, it really is just a puzzle. It's just like this, like a trivia problem, right? The the difference between a math problem and a magic trick is a magic trick has a story. And a math Mm -hmm. problem is just you figuring out the mechanics of what the answer is. 
And so the moment I remove a, st- a story from the trick, it's really not that compelling. And the same is true of selling things, of generating content, of writing speeches. So you have to invite people into a story. I love that. And honestly, I think um, that that's where I want to stick an exclamation point on this conversation, which I, I hope is the first of of many, but ending on um, wow, not how. And I, I really want people to be able to go away and think about uh, how they can bring that into their work, into their life, into their family, uh, and not not immediately shut down things with worrying about how are we going to do it? How are we going to afford it? How are we ever going to get people to buy it? Um, and instead mm-hmm. just, just enjoy the exploration of what's possible and, and see what comes out of that. I think if that's the lesson that, that we can take away from this conversation, uh, I think that's huge. And I thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad it's helpful. So, yeah. So let me ask before I let you go for those who are curious and either checking out some of your, uh, you know, really cool illusions or, um, you know, <laughs> seeing where, either where they can see you or, or learn a little bit more about you. Where are the best places for people to check you out? Yeah. Well, the, the Instagram feed you talked about is always a fun place to start on social media. It's just yeah. at Harris the third. So Harris, I, I, I like the Roman numeral three. I really am a third. Um, so in my family, there are three of us, but I am the first magician. Uh, and you can also look up videos online, harristhethird.com, or you can type in Harris the Third into YouTube. Um, and then for all the other things we have going on, um, you know, the best place is just to go straight to the Story website. Story is a really special creative community that is made up of not only artists, but anyone who believes in the power of stories. So yeah, a lot of them are filmmakers and photographers and writers, but a lot of them also find themselves in corporate workspaces and they wouldn't label their role as very creative or artistic, but we still believe that they are creative and that they are a storyteller. So the thing that everyone in that community shares in common is that they they believe in the power the stories have. So that website is storygatherings.com. We do a variety of gatherings. Um, Gathering is really a part of our uh, the brand that we are just simply story. Um, and so we have the conference, we do these local free gatherings around the world. We do workshops in different regions. It's a lot of fun. So storygatherings.com. Great. Well, Hey, thank you for being generous with your time. This was a really, um, fun conversation and, uh, I look forward to seeing you in September in Nashville at the story conference too. Yeah, man, I can't wait. It's going to be a blast. All right, Harris. Hey, thanks again.